deeply troubled by some of these videos being sent around like the one from the quack researcher who made statements like well it takes 800 years for a virus to move from an animal into human populations a statistic which appears to have been plucked from thin air that video also gave suspiciously favorable coverage to people with automatic weapons standing on the states of state capitals yelling about their freedoms being infringed upon was also disturbed by a piece sent to me by another physician talking about how they were suppressing the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine and raising some cockamamie theory about how it was uh, the patent for remdesivir was being held by a Chinese company and something really nefarious was going on to move us away from using hydroxychloroquine, which is very effective, which caused me to send a note back just saying, really, your evidence is what? I think I mentioned on last week's show that I went rummaging through my uh, travel kit supplies and found not only azithromycin, but hydroxychloroquine, to which I think I added, you know, I'd be glad to have this stuff if it worked, but there's not much evidence that it does. Referring to the president's bleach gate references to how we might be able to use sunlight and household disinfectant to battle the virus, Vlad Plumer, writing in the New York Times, said that, um, well, bleach gate didn't happen in a vacuum. The subordination of science to his own instincts and whims has been a defining characteristic of the Trump administration. Even before being elected, he hyped the non-existent link between vaccines and autism and dismissed climate change as a hoax cooked up by the Chinese, a view that led him to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord. The Guardian notes that Trump's disquieting war on science is a fundamental part of his brand, His populist political movement has anti-intellectual DNA, just like every other strongman movement in modern history. Jonah Goldberg, writing in Dispatch.com, said Trump actually believes he's smarter than scientists, longing for an easy fix to a pandemic that threatens his re-election. Trump seized on the bleach and sunlight cure as a brilliant idea that never occurred to them fancy-pants experts. And I have to chuckle a bit at NY Mag's Jonathan Chait, noting that Trump suffers from what is known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. I was familiar with this phenomenon, but I did not know it was called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's that well-documented phenomenon describing how people with low abilities are too incompetent to recognize their own incompetence. Said Chait, he's left no doubt that we're facing the greatest public health crisis in a century behind the leadership of an ignorant crank who thinks he's a genius. Now, Trump did have a a possibly genius relative, his MIT professor uncle, who apparently was brought on board by the U.S. government to look through the papers of Nikolai Tesla after he passed away, looking for a, a validation of Tesla's claims to have some really powerful technologies. Apparently, Uncle John G. Trump did not find any, or at least that's what he reported. Radio Parallax has received a uh, very much unconfirmed report that Julian Assange may represent the illegitimate son of John G. Trump. We'll try and run that one down, although we don't expect to expend a lot of energy on it. 
We do note that our president, who thinks he's a genius, told the press that he'd seen evidence that the coronavirus originated in a Chinese lab. Trump made such comments hours after the Office of the Director of National Intelligence issued a statement saying that no such assessment has been made and continues to be rigorously examined. That's whether the outbreak began through contact with infected animals or the result of an accident at a laboratory in Wuhan. When asked whether he'd seen evidence that would suggest the virus came from the lab, Trump said, yes, I have. And asked later why he was confident in that assessment, Trump said, I can't tell you that. I'm not allowed to tell you that. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo rather remarkably said he, and I'm not sure I'm quoting him correctly, but I think he said he saw no reason why there was not compelling evidence for the lab theory. And then when asked about the intelligence assessment said there was also no reason to disagree with their assessment that it wasn't. So what's the deal on this? Naturally, we're going to have to rely upon our British publications, The Economist and New Scientist, to take a look. Voicing an opinion on this topic, The Economist said that China's opacity as regarding the origins of the virus has allowed dangerous conspiracy theories to flurry. Their editorials asked, where did it come from? After five months and over 250,000 deaths, the question is a subject of a vicious spat between America and China. By far the most likely explanation is that the virus jumped from bats to humans, perhaps via another animal such as a pangolin at a wet market in Wuhan. But conspiracy theorists muttered that the bug could have escaped from one of the city's laboratories, at least two of which research into infectious diseases. Donald Trump wants an investigation, whereas in March the Chinese said, at least through one of its spokesmen, that the virus might have come from America. The Economist notes that the virus shows no sign of deliberate human construction and there is no reason to doubt that it evolved entirely in the wild. But, they note, accidents do happen. And bugs being studied during legitimate experiments in laboratories have escaped in the past. SARS, a virus that killed 774 back in 2002-03, slipped out of a lab in Beijing twice in 2004. And it should be noted that the world's last known case of smallpox was caused by a leak from a British laboratory in 1978. The Economist states that ending the dispute over COVID's origins is especially important because super-secure biolabs are becoming more common. There are now about 70 biosafety level 4 sites designed to deal with fatal diseases, which lack a cure or vaccine, in 30 countries. America has over a dozen. China has two. One is the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This takes us back over to the debate in Davis as to whether they should open a biosafety level, I believe, for lab. This was widely opposed by um, a number of people, including Radio Parallax. The Economist notes if handling pathogens is nerve-jangling stuff, tinkering with them is risky too. One branch of research in particular is specifically aimed at making diseases even more dangerous by being better at hopping between humans, for instance, or more resistant to antibiotics in the case of bacteria. Scientists at the Wuhan lab were engaged in such experiments known as gain of function in collaboration with American and Italian scientists. The magazine notes, it sounds creepy, but such works bring potential rewards as scientists might understand better how a new disease might behave, which can aid the development of drugs that could save many lives. As a result, it is crucial that governments around the world weigh the trade-offs involved in research and monitor breaches 
and encourage full transparency. Sadly, policy has been going in the opposite direction. Since 2017, America has had a dedicated panel to scrutinize its own laboratories, but its membership and workings remain regrettably opaque. An extensive article in The Economist in their Science and Technology section, they note that the pieces of the puzzle of how COVID-19 originated are coming to light, but how they fit together is still somewhat mysterious. They say there is no evidence for the claim, at least this is what Western experts reportedly say, and they say categorically, that the sequence of the new virus's genome, which Chinese scientists published early on openly and accurately, reveal none of the telltales which genetic engineering would leave in its wake. But it remains a fact that in Wuhan, where the outbreak was first spotted, there is a laboratory where scientists have, in the past, deliberately made coronaviruses more pathogenic. They go on to say such research is carried out in laboratories around the world, and its proponents see it as a vital way of studying the question that COVID-19 has brought so cruelly into the spotlight. How does a virus become the sort of thing that starts a pandemic? That some of this research has been done in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the WIV, seems all but certainly a coincidence, the magazine says. Without a compelling alternative account for the disease's origins, however, there is room for doubt. And although some of this gets technical, I think it's worth going through. The origin of the virus behind the 2003 SARS outbreak, classic SARS as some virologists are now wryly calling it, was established in large part by Shi Zhengli, a researcher at the WIV, sometimes later referred to in the Chinese media as the Bat Lady. Over a period of years, she and her team visited remote locations all across the country in search of a close relative of SARS-CoV-2 in bats or their guano. They found one in a cave full of horseshoe bats in Yunnan province. It is in the collection of viral genomes assembled during those studies that scientists have now found the bat virus closest to SARS-CoV-2. It's a strain called RATG13. It was gathered in the same cave in Yunnan, and it shares 96% of its genetic sequence with the new virus. RATG13 is not the virus's ancestor, it is said. It is something more like its cousin. Edward Holmes, a virologist at the University of Sydney, estimates that the 4% difference between the two represents at least 20 years of evolutionary divergence from some common antecedent, and probably something more like 50. Although bats could, in theory, have passed a virus descended from that antecedent directly to humans, experts find that idea unlikely. They do not think contacts between humans and bats are close enough for easy transmission. And the spike protein on the surface of the SARS-CoV-2 has a distinct receptor binding domain, RBD, which is adept at sticking to molecules on the surface of some human cells. But the spike protein on its closest relative looks different. One recent study takes this to suggest that the SARS-CoV-2 is the product of natural genomic recombination. Different coronaviruses infecting the same host are more than happy to swap little bits of its genome. If a bat virus similar to RATG13 got into an animal already affected with a coronavirus which boasted a receptor binding domain of the type now seen, and causing all the trouble by making it infectious in humans, 
a batty virus that resembles SARS-CoV-2 could have been the result. It was widely imagined early on that the intermediate host was likely to be a species sold at the Wuhan Hunan Seafood and Wildlife Market, a place where all sorts of creatures from raccoon dogs to ferret badgers from far and near are crammed together in unsanitary conditions. Many early human cases of COVID-19 were associated with this market. Jonathan Epstein, Vice President of Science with EcoHealth Alliance, an NGO, said 585 swabs of different surfaces around the market reveal about 33 positive for SARS-CoV-2. They all came from the area known to sell wild animals, which is pretty much as strong as circumstantial evidence gets. The first animal to come under serious suspicion was the pangolin. A coronavirus found in pangolins has a receptor-binding domain essentially identical to that of the SARS-CoV-2, suggesting that it might have been the virus which which the bat virus recombined on its way to becoming SARS-CoV-2. Now, the Chinese use pangolins in traditional medicine and eat them, although apparently they're illegal to have on the menu. There's apparently no record of them being traded at the Hunan market, but given that such trading is illegal and that such records would now look rather incriminating, that is hardly proof that they were not. Now, the viral genomes that are currently being found in we human beings suggests that they're so similar that the virus jumped from an intermediate host to people only once. And estimates based on that rate at which genomes diverge naturally, which they do, gives the earliest time for this transfer as early October 2019. And of course, it is possible that this took place somewhere else in China and that the virus entered the Hunan market not in a cage, but on two legs. Anyway, suffice it to say that the jury is still out on this. It remains a possibility that the lab in Wuhan might prove to be the original source of this pandemic virus, but the best evidence, at least the best evidence we have at the moment, suggests otherwise, but it remains possible. The Economist also has a rather long article on COVID-19 and the immune system, stressing that producing antibody to a virus is, is not enough. It has to be an antibody that actually neutralizes the virus. My understanding is that um, the patients that contracted HIV produced tons of antibody against the virus. It just didn't curtail the virus. The article closed with a rather pessimistic note, noting that politicians in most countries are emphasizing their willingness to follow science's lead in matters concerning the pandemic. Their worry now must be that science has no lead to offer, to which I say, hold on, there's going to be leads. And in a third article related to this cluster of pieces, um, The Economist notes that rather unexpectedly, people who smoke seem to have an advantage when it comes to COVID-19. There's speculation that um, the fact that the severely ill with COVID-19 are often the victims of a hyperactive immune response called a cytokine storm, and the fact that nicotine is speculated to suppress that reaction, well, that might explain why smokers have an edge. Now, we don't know that this little datum trumps the fact that the greatest Health intervention known to medical science, or the most effective one, is for the smoker to quit. And that's a fact. <laughs> but whether having a slight edge during this pandemic uh, negates that, we, we would, would hesitate to state. And for God's sakes, if you don't smoke, don't take it up as COVID-19 protection. All right. I was wondering why Mr. McMillan had a pack of Chesterfields. 
Now, in New Scientist magazine, which, which we tend to rely upon for its excellent science reporting, a piece by Anthony King titled, An Uncommon Cold is Something We Do Need to Take a Few Minutes and Quote From. The subheadline notes that the COVID-19 virus isn't the first coronavirus to jump from animals to humans, and we can learn a lot from previous encounters. Peace starts out by noting that in 1889, a disease outbreak in Central Asia went global. It ignited a pandemic that burned into the following year, caused fever and fatigue, and killed an estimated 1 million. The disease is generally blamed on influenza and was dubbed the Russian flu. But with no tissue samples to check for the flu virus, there remains no conclusive proof. Another possibility is that this flu was actually a coronavirus pandemic. The finger has been pointed at a virus first isolated in the 1960s, although today it causes nothing more serious than a common cold. In fact, there are four coronaviruses responsible for an estimated 20 to 30% of colds. Only recently have virologists begun to dig into these seemingly humdrum pathogens, and what they found suggests the viruses have a far more deadly past. Researchers now believe that all four of these viruses began to infect humans in the past few centuries, and when they did, they probably sparked pandemics. Coronaviruses are a big family of viruses. They are mainly known for causing diseases in livestock. Until recently, few virologists paid them much attention. Frank Esper of the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio said human coronaviruses were recognized in the 1960s, but the two strains that were discovered then merely caused the common cold. We pushed them to the side, he said. We had more important viruses to work on. This blasé attitude evaporated in 2002 when a new member of the coronavirus family began infecting humans. By this time, the epidemic of severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, was brought under control the following year. The SARS-CoV-1 virus affected 26 countries and killed 1 in 10 of the 8,000-plus people it infected. The fact that a coronavirus could be so deadly was a wake-up call. A sleepy backwater in the world of virology was suddenly in the spotlight. And I do add with some sadness that we have someone associated with this program who apparently suffered from that SARS-1 outbreak 20 or so years ago. The report I'm getting is that four family members sustained the virus, and fortunately none passed away. I would like them to talk about their experience on this show, but alas, they declined. Anyway, back to the article. SARS-CoV-1 was soon traced back to its roots. Related viruses were discovered in bats, animals whose unusual physiology allows them to live with a cornucopia of coronaviruses without falling ill. That SARS outbreak seems to have been sparked when one of these bat viruses started infecting civet cats and moved from that intermediate host into humans. Caught off guard, virologists embarked on a coronavirus safari, tracking them down in people and wildlife in an attempt to understand how these changes might have happened and the potential future risks. And I have to confess, I'm a little bit amazed at what they found. One virus hunter, Leah Vanderhoek at the University of Amsterdam, had been perfecting a genetic technique to discover unknown viruses and recently found another coronavirus in a seven-month-old child with bronchiolitis. She said, I found NL63 by accident before we knew about SARS and the whole world began screening. A decade of subsequent research revealed that NL63, coronavirus, 
is widespread, turning up in between 1% to 9% of people with respiratory tract infections around the world. It causes fevers, coughs, sore throats, bronchitis, and pneumonia. Children are invariably infected with it in the first year of life. The loud cough that children get like barking seals, that is typical of NL63. When I was in medical school, we attributed uh, most cases of croup to respiratory syncytial virus, but maybe we were wrong. Relatives of the NL63 have since been found in pigs, bats, and cats. In 2012, genetic comparisons between the human version and those found in bats indicated they share a common ancestor between 563 and 822 years ago. There's some imprecision to these methods. But it suggests that the virus made the leap to humans sometime in the 13th to 15th century. Virologist Ralph Barak at the University of North Carolina said when it did, the result was probably a pandemic. The original NL63 would have been deadly in human populations which lacked any immunity. It, like SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, our current virus, both latch onto the same cell receptor, angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, which is plentiful in lungs and intestines. Said Dr. Barrick, this would look like a flu-like disease. Following the SARS outbreak, there was renewed interest in the two seemingly unexciting common cold coronaviruses which were discovered back in the 60s, 229E and OC43. Those viruses don't have fancy names, which means they've not been studied very much. They were orphan viruses for a long time, but in 2003, Belgian researcher Mark Van Rant became the first to sequence the genome of OC43. And by comparing its sequence with strains found in other animals, they concluded that OC43 must have originated in cattle or pigs. And using that method of back-tracing the mutation rates, they calculated the jump into humans occurred about 1890. Sound familiar? This is interesting stuff, and I wish I had more time to talk about it. Unfortunately, today I do not. Before we leave the article, we should note, however, that there's... uh, Some bad news in it. An experiment done in 1990 found that volunteers infected with coronavirus 229E were vulnerable to reinfection a year later. And if that happened, they experienced no symptoms but could still pass on the virus. Researchers think that has worrying implications for coping with COVID-19. Ms. Whelan tells me we've got about five minutes left and I've got a big, thick pile of virus-related stuff on the table in front of me. But in the five minutes we have left, I think we should talk about something else. God knows we'll be back on this a week from now. So let's do a little science that involves looking up. That always cheers us up. Beetlejuice! No, we've moved on from that. Do yourself a favor, dear listener, especially if you missed the stunning uh, full moon last night. It'll, It'll still be almost full the next few days. That's worth a look. But uh, after you've looked to the east to see the rising gorgeous moon, turn around and look west to capture Venus at its still near-peak brightness. Venus has passed us on the inside track, as it were, in its orbit around the sun and will be dropping each night uh, throughout the rest of the month and will be gone by month's end. So check it out now. Later in the month, Mercury will rise to meet it, however, and you'll be able to see both inner planets, which is kind of cool. According to the Old Farmer's Almanac, Venus and Mercury will form a fine, close conjunction on the 21st. But they'll only be 10 degrees high in fading twilight, so you'll have to make some effort to see them. 
Something else you will not be able to see, no matter how hard you try here in North America, although thankfully we do have some listeners south of the equator, will be the closest black hole to Earth, which astronomers have recently discovered. It is only 1,000 light years away. This new black hole is part of a three-body orbiting system, which consists of two stars, which you can see with the naked eye if you're down in Australia. All you have to do is find the constellation Telescopium, and the two stars will appear as one to your naked eye. If you get a big old telescope out and take a look, you'll separate them into its two component stars, but obviously you won't see the black hole. It's invisible. Now, black holes do make themselves visible when uh, they devour things around them. That process releases quite a bit of energy, but this particular quiet black hole is not doing that. Now, over the years, scientists have found a couple of dozen black holes right here in our Milky Way galaxy. They generally announce their presence by having disruptive, violent interactions with their surroundings and release lots of x-rays. But this one they discovered by plotting the orbital paths of the two stars, which they assumed were orbiting one another. Turned out to be more complicated than that. The two inner bodies of a star and black hole orbit one another rather rapidly, whereas the other star orbits the two bodies' center of gravity. You might want to look up some of the uh, animations of this on the internet. It's, it's kind of interesting. And even more interesting, which also has some curious pictures on the internet, is an update on the 1908 Siberian explosion over the Tunguska River. It has often been described as the largest impact event in recorded history, but since there is no crater and no obvious impact, this has always left people scratching their heads. It was a big explosion back on June 30th, 1908. To be sure, it flattened more than 80 million trees across 500,000 acres of forest. But the lack of crater or debris has always puzzled people. Previous theories have suggested that perhaps a comet hit the Earth. But the latest theory coming out of Russia is that it was, in fact, a small iron asteroid. The latest modeling done in Russia suggests that an object between 300 to 600 feet across, hitting the atmosphere and skipping off while traveling at about 20 kilometers per second, could explain what we find in Siberia. Uh, we think this is quite plausible. Siberia should be grateful for the fact that it possibly skipped off our upper atmosphere. If this was an iron meteorite 600 feet across, then it would have been 10 times the length and a thousand times the mass of that chunk of iron that blew a hole in the Arizona desert 50,000 years ago. That about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax which we're hoping someday before too long will revert to being Radio Parallax instead of Radio COVID-19. We'll see you next week. Oh.